This is Philip. I'm just wanted to thank you for listening to us and subscribing. And I just also wanted to point out that I know the quality of the audios has been a little up and down. And me and Robert are working on that. And we're going to get you some better, more consistent audios in the future. We've been doing some like via satellite long distance so that's created some issues but we're working on getting it solved so just stick with us thanks for listening and you'll you can expect some better more consistent quality in the future so take care and so i hope you enjoy this welcome back to episode. presidential podcast this is philip and robert and we're glad to be back. We finished up our last series on LBJ and Nixon. So now uh, we've agreed we're going to go ahead and try to do a short series on Polk. Um, James K. Polk, who was which president? Oh, boy, you're asking a hard question. What was he? Lincoln was 16. Buchanan, mm-hmm. 15. Um, Fillmore, 14. Taylor, 13. And I believe Polk was before Taylor, so he would be 12. Perhaps he was, what was he? Let's see if it's right. 12. 12, okay. All right. Um, and we're, I guess we'll begin with him. His period um, was in the mid-1800s, right? About 20 years before, 15 or 20 years. Um, the late 1840s. Oh, the 11th, 11th president. Okay. All right. Um, okay, never mind. All right. Um, what is, uh, all right, let's begin. He was born in uh, North Carolina, no? Correct. Mecklenburg County, which is Charlotte now. Okay. Is he, the, is he one of the only presidents from uh, North Carolina? Jackson. Okay, Jackson. Okay. And and in that period, Charlotte was quite a bit smaller than it is now, no? Well, it was a country village. Okay. And and what were his... Why why is that? Charlotte was a village. Well, if it had been a real place, it would have had an Indian name instead of uh, being named after whatever Duchess or Okay, all right. Going, um, I don't know which president you missed. I'm looking at the list. It says Buchanan, 15, Pierce, 14, Fillmore, 13, Taylor, 12, Polk, 11. All right, I left out Pierce. That was a problem. Okay. So what were Polk's parents? What did they do? Farmers. Okay. And he grew up poor. Was he in a large family? What was his um, uh, upbringing like? He had a lot of children, I think. You know, and uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here because I didn't look it up and see that there were like 11 children in that group. Okay. And was he in the middle? Yeah. But first, you know, like seventh or something like that. Okay. And what... Um, and. Was his family religious? Were they? What were the values of the family? Um, Polk was was a devout Methodist. Um, it's not clear 
if he developed his religiosity in the household that he was raised in or after his marriage or during his courtship. Um, the, the, the pioneer was, or the uh, frontier mm-hmm. was different. I mean, we have stories of John Wesley riding into the little, you know, four-corner settlement and sitting on his horse, putting his Bible on the saddle horn mm-hmm. and reading out of the Bible and then responding to people as they came up and spoke to him. So the Methodism of James K. Polk's era was that rough and ready frontier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're going into the land with the, with the, the good book and the Holy Spirit guiding us. And, you know, that it, it, it was much more searching, much more provisional, much more basic than anything in, in American religion now. It was a revivalist religion too, right? I, I, I you know, not in the sense of like the first and the second or third revival. Not like it, Finney. No, not like him at all. Um, Methodism always was very geared toward the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, in England, and I think pretty much in Europe in general, Methodism is the only Protestant denomination that was primarily an urban, an urban denomination. I mean, they they went out in the countryside over here because they're you know basically where the people in the south and the west were. I mean, it was a frontier. Uh, but in England, they went into the slums and they went into the uh, into the housing development. Sprang up around the factories, so there was always a very strong uh, predisposition and mechanism to preach to the poor and the downtrodden. Was Pope? Did he? So we don't know. We don't know exactly when he. By the time he was established, he was a religious. He was a religious man, but he wasn't. It's not clear whether how early that formed was. Um, he. Uh, with no politics in the family, what led him into politics? And what was his upbringing like? What was his adolescence like? Was he notable in school? What were his strengths as a child? I, I don't recall his being notable in school. I mean, of course, they didn't have permanent records back then. You know, if he was educated. It probably was at... Uh, in an ad hoc class from an itinerant teacher or schoolmaster, you know, somebody wandering around in much the manner that I just described, uh, John Wesley wandering around, you know, coming into a settlement saying, uh, a bunch of kids, I can teach them to read, you know, give me 10 bucks and I'll stay until the next harvest. Sure. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of these guys were like, they were very verbal, they were very inquisitive, they weren't lazy in that they were afraid of work, but they hated farming and manual, manual labor. Mm-hmm. And 
really wanted to get ahead in life, and they all saw the law as being almost an exalted uh, profession as the clergy, which probably to a lot of them was the highest form of, of vocation. And, you know, law, law is pretty useful. I mean, we tend to denigrate attorneys, but uh, law is pretty useful. I mean, if, if you're in a frontier community, you have to set the meets and bounds on everybody's farm. You have to figure out the water right. You have to figure out what livestock belongs to whom. There are marriages. There's presumably a certain amount of inheritance. There's crime. Uh, they were also in territories without established government, so the, the ordinances of cities had to be written. I mean, there, there was a lot of work for uh, somebody who wanted to be a lawyer back then. Does it come across clear to you that Polk was ambitious from a very young age? Yeah, I, I, I'd say pretty much that he, he, you know, he didn't want to grow up like his parents. He didn't want to, you know, uh, knock down trees, cut down trees, pull up the stumps, plow the fields. Uh, he didn't want to work in a grist mill, you know, where there was a danger of uh, big fires and uh, a lot of hard work, you know, grinding up the grain. Uh, he didn't appear to have a good eye for cutting or uh, hammering, joining things together, so carpentry would seem to be kind of out for him. So, uh, and he seemed to like to read, he seemed to get along well with people, he seemed to have a very sharp mind, a high degree of verbal ability, so uh, he, went, he went into law. Was, okay, it says here, I mean, in just a biography on him, that his short biography that his father did was a slave owner. Is there any particular feeling that comes out uh, that Polk had towards the slavery question? Um, I don't think that Polk himself kept any slaves. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of times, uh, well, a lot of people who weren't farmers would have some servants around to cook and to clean and to, you know, take care of their clothes and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. I don't think Coach had uh, slaves in his house. Um, back then, everything had to be done by hand. You know, it was either oxen or people. And... You know, if you couldn't do it yourself and you couldn't get your kids to do it, you had to get somebody to do it and you didn't have any money. So there was a, you know, a certain expediency that went along with slavery. So, you know, when we think back to slave ownership in the pre-industrial period, we really have to think about the division of labor. I mean, that slavery became a horrible institution because it allowed rich people to maintain their lands, their houses, their businesses without paying anybody to own them. And 
that deteriorated every society it touched. And there's a very high degree of cruelty involved in slavery. You know, you tell somebody, I don't want to do that. It's hard work. You have to do it. You know, you don't say, I'm going to give you chicken and dumplings when you get home. You say, I'm going to beat your ass if you don't do it. So there, there's always a high degree of slavery or a high degree of cruelty involved in slavery. And obviously coercion. Um, all right. So they make the family makes a. Does the family make a move to Tennessee, or does Polk himself make a move? That I don't recall. Um, my my. I would suspect that they probably because uh, um, Mecklenburg County is so close to Tennessee. I would suspect that there was a, a successive series of moves. Each one taking them farther west until the point that uh, uh, James K. Polk was ready to leave home. And then at that point, he went to Nashville, the state capital. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, usually when you read these guys' lives, you know, there's not a steady progression. And, it, and you know, they're not land aristocrats where there's tutors. Tutors, court events, and all that sort of thing. I mean, these are very rough and ready people living a hand to mouth existence on the frontier. So things kind of happen to them as much as they make things happen. Okay. So what what was the content? What was the. So I know that Polk's. Um, influence. He's beginning, he's beginning to practice law. His influence is. I mean, I imagine at this time are starting out to be, this is probably the 1820s. He's starting to, um, Jackson is on the scene, no? And so, or not yet, maybe not yet. And is, I don't know, is that his election in, in, in the 20s? Jackson would, have been, Jackson would have been a power in Tennessee because uh, Polk was only 45 or 46 when he became president. So he was born like in 1800, 1799, 1803, somewhere around there. And uh, Jackson achieved prominence in the War of 1812. So Polk would have definitely known a lot about him. He would have been a larger, Jackson would have been a larger than life figure to Polk. And uh, there would have been, you know, a very, very, well-established Jacksonian party and in was that, Nashville. And that was the Democratic Party? Yes. And, what, yeah, Jefferson and Jackson are considered the founders. Of that's the what I was going to say. Did the Southerners view Jefferson or Jackson, like what, a guy like Polk, a Southerner, kind of a rural character, not an aristocrat, a work, coming from a working-class family, but obviously um, smart, would he have considered his... Do you think he would have looked more fondly or more as like an ideal in in terms of like a Jackson or a Jefferson? Okay, so oh, excuse me. There's there's a lot in that. So uh, North and South were kind of evenly balanced. And, you know, after the Maine Misery Compromise, the Compromise of eighteen twenty, there was a distinct effort. Pretty much everything in American politics fell around maintaining 
balance between the north and the south. So the Trans-Appalachian West, uh, Tennessee and Kentucky, a lot of the prominent politicians of the period arose from those two states because they're kind of like in the middle. You know, Kentucky goes across and touches all, you know, uh, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. Uh, Tennessee goes across and touches Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. So they're kind of in the middle, and they're also in the West. So there wasn't a strong identification for people in that party with either the North or the South. Okay. Um, because of the enormous profile or silhouette that Jackson had in Polk's life, I think he would have identified more with Jackson than with Jefferson. Now, I want to bring up another issue here. What was Pope's middle name? K. Middle initial, middle name. I'm not sure. What is it? Knox. K-N-O-X. Okay. He was not named after the General Knox for whom Fort Knox was named. Okay. For the gold supplies. He was named after the John Knox, who was uh, one of the founders of Presbyterianism. Mm. Mm-hmm. So this indicates the religiosity in the family life. But it is also an ethnic name in that Pope shared Jackson's Scots-Irish descent. So there's a whole history, a whole sense of separateness, uh, a sense of so was he puritanical? Huh? Was he puritanical? No, it's not so much that they're puritanical as that they are people who are virtuous but persecuted. Yeah, they don't they don't feel at home in their own country almost. Right, right. I mean they were they were basically exiled. Uh first from Scotland and from Ireland. So, you know, they got here and they had a very distinctive Highland culture, you know, they were in the Appalachians on both sides of it, the uh, the cis Appalachian side and the trans Appalachian side. And, you know, West Virginia and all that mountaineer uh, culture down there is is all Scots-Irish. And, you know, it, it was that whole region, western Pennsylvania, um, eastern Tennessee, eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, you know, the whole state, uh, western North Carolina. You know, the sense that we're a separate people. We uh, are very virtuous. Uh, we try to be very learned and sagacious, sagacious in our uh, judgment. And, you know, there was definitely an affinity toward each other. We got to take care of ourselves and we got to take care of our clan and we got to take care of our people. Was a self-reliance as well, right? So, and very self-reliant because they lived in small communities in very rural, isolated areas. So to answer your question, I, I think that uh, Pope was much more identified with Jackson than with Jefferson. Okay. All right. Do you think that um, w- 
his think his so his thinking is obviously shaped by religion. Um, his thinking is also shaped by his um, legal background and jurisprudence. What? How do you think that that um, kind of either sets him up for the presidency or serves him when he gets into the presidency? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, one of the things that was very notable about James K. Polk was remarked upon repeatedly by his contemporaries with his seriousness and him being a workaholic. He had no outside interest. You know, he went to work. He worked. Um, his wife's name was, was Lucretia. He confided in her. He apparently didn't confide in many other people. And uh, he was primarily a legislative uh, manager. He gained prominence as the uh, floor leader and later the uh, faction leader of the Jackson faction in the Tennessee Assembly. He was tireless in, in whipping the bills that needed to be whipped. He was a consummate horse trader in political terms, exchanging patronage positions for votes. Um, you know, there was no uh, shyness about somebody saying, you know, I'll get your son a West Point appointment or I'll get your brother-in-law a postmaster's job or uh, we'll run a road by your, uh, through your pound if you vote with us on whatever issue. Right. And, and Polk apparently had a compendious mind which allowed him to remember all those deals all the building appropriations coming before them and, and, and to manage it all basically in his head. Do you think that I hear, yeah, so alright, do you think that, so maybe it sounds like pragmatism basically and orderliness of thinking and not being distracted. Do you think that he, alright, what what about what about Jackson appealed to him besides the religion? I mean, the ethnic heritage. Did he like what Jackson stood for over and against, like a Henry Clay? What 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 was the? How did he, in a way, see the world divided or see the politics of the time divided? Why would he choose? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Think about Henry Clay. Henry Clay had essentially the same job that uh, Polk had. Essentially the same what? Henry Clay had essentially the same job as Pope. He was the assembly leader in Kentucky. And, I mean, these two states are like mirror images of each other. And Clay had a reputation also for being a very hard worker, but being subtle, sneaky, double-dealing, just, you know, just all the things that we think about with a politician that make us hate politicians. Okay. Jackson was seen as a dynamic leader. I mean, 
they, they farmed, they had big herds of livestock. You know, they, they were numerous. They weren't, they weren't pushovers. And at one point, um, they ordered Jackson to come back to Tennessee with the Tennessee militia, which he set off to fight against the Indians with. And Jackson refused the orders and said, I'll pay him myself. You know, if the Tennessee militia won't pay for this expedition, won't send the salaries for the soldiers, I'll pay him out of my own funds. You know, I'll pay for the expedition out of my own funds. And then there's the same incident, you know, in the same campaign when Jackson was sick, probably with malaria, possibly with cholera. And uh, the officers and some of the NCOs, well, you know, we no longer have the sanction of the legislature. This is now an illegal mission, you know, a, a freebooting mission, which uh, Colonel Jackson is leading us on. Jackson got off his sick bed, got on his horse with a shotgun, two pistols, sat in the middle of the road, and I'm shoot the first person tries to get past me. You guys are going back. We're taking on those Indians. So uh, I think those were the sort of characteristics which Pope uh, admired in Jackson, that he was a real stand-up guy. He wasn't afraid to spend his own money to advance uh, the cause yeah. of the state. And, you know, he was impeccably honest and, 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 and also loyal, you know, in sharp contrast to Clay. Was there a sense of a, a kind of Jackson was the people's leader and the Whigs were more aristocratic or elitist? No. Okay. Um, Jackson having the personality which Jackson possessed, which I just described, you know, also, you know, famously killed a guy in a duel where, he, you know, the other man shot first, shot Jackson in the chest, Jackson stood up and killed a guy in the duel. So, you know, Jackson had this indomitability about him and apparently was a very compelling uh, figure in leadership. So Jackson basically remade the U.S. presidency from what Jefferson had established, which was you know, Jefferson was was very retiring, did not appear in public, uh, basically ran the government through James Madison and James Monroe. He would dictate letters to them, and they would send the letters out to the various department heads who would, you know, respond in writing how they were carrying out what Jefferson wanted to do. Jackson was all over the place. He was telling people what to do. He was you know, very much the hands-on leader. So he was dubbed very early in his administration King Andrew the First. Mm. King Andrew the First. So if we recall the Whig Party in England during the mid seventeen hundreds, a century before, the Whigs were the anti-royalist party. While they did not call for a republic. They did not call for the abolition of a monarchy. They nevertheless felt that the powers of the monarch should be uh, very prescribed, very well defined. 
defined and very limited. Mm. So that was the uh, kind of, of mindset that the Whigs had. They believed in a very, very strong program of national improvement in contrast to the Democrats' ideas of a high degree of decentralization. Mm-hmm. The Whigs supported commerce, industry, and business. The uh, Jeffersonians and Jacksonians supported an agrarian type of model for development. Uh, the Whigs weren't entirely urban, but they were more centered in the urban areas. And uh, you know, the Whigs, I mean, they definitely had that strong nationalism and that idea of, of, of national uh, development. They, they supported tariffs, for instance. The, uh, the uh, Democrats were against tariffs. Hmm. Now, all right. Go ahead, go ahead and explain, like, um, why don't you go a bit into his legislative career? Was did He, he goes from Tennessee State Assembly to U.S. House of Representatives, right? Correct. And how successful is he in the House of Representatives? And is he the type of person that would have succeeded in any era of the U.S., of American history? Or was he specifically kind of cut out for that time? So he, he you know, I wouldn't say he had a meteoric rise, but it was quick. I mean, maybe 12, 15 years of, of going into the House, uh, rising to the top echelon of leadership in the House, which back then was the top echelon of leadership in the country. Uh, you know, the way the Constitution was written, uh, the House was really the innovative, active part of the government. The Senate was there to put a break on it. The uh, presidency was there more to uh, carry out what the, what the House wanted to do. So, you know, uh, Polk really was at the center of the action. Of course, government moved a lot slower back then. Washington was a sleepy southern city without commerce, culture, industry, or any other attributes other than the federal government. And when Congress was out of session, Congress was out of session. So um, it took a lot of concentration, a lot of willpower, a lot of leadership in the legislative ways for Polk to rise the level of leadership he achieved. I suspect Given his background, given his outlook, in modern-day Washington, he would have been a lobbyist and not a legislator, and would have been a real, you know, real high-paid million-dollar-a-year lobbyist. Was he interested in getting wealthy? Interested in getting what? Wealthy. He does not appear to have... uh, a vast fortune. He appears to have lived very uh, fully, lived within his salary. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so hard to tell because he didn't have any sort of uh, record keeping where you could look back and see he earned as much 
much this year and that much that year. This was his primary source of income. I mean, we suspect from the way they did things back then, he probably always had a number of wealthy client backers back home, did a, a modicum of legal work for them, and in return uh, received the funds he needed for his campaign for his social life in Washington, which would work. You know, I mean, they all recognize, you know, you got to go to a certain number of parties and put on dinners and attend dinners and so on when you're in a position like that. But there were dinners. You know, there might be a, a degree of conviviality involved, but there were dinners. So, um, Pope probably lived like a rich person, but we have no indication that he left a fortune or amassed a fortune. Was what uh, he had no children. They had no children. Do we know why? Um, what I've always read was that Lucretia had frail health and wasn't able to bear children. Okay. Um, and Polk's moral life is pretty spotless. It's pretty what? Spotless. Solid, is that what you said? Spotless. I'm not understanding what you what you how you're terming it. Spotless? Without spot? Spotless. Spotless. No scandals. No debauchery. No drunkenness. No immorality. No known uh affairs. No uh you know, he went to church every Sunday. He went to church Wednesday. No indication that he was uh, engaged in any sort of uh, sordid business dealings. No military expedition like Jackson led. Uh, no bad dealings with international countries. I mean, we beat Mexico in a war, but beat them very decisively, but, you know, there's no indication of, of slaughters, atrocities. We paid them. After after we beat them, we paid them for the, for the land we took from them uh, at Pope's behest. So uh, I, I, I say he, you know, he had a high degree of, of integrity and morality. Like a, like a, like a grant, like a, similar to a grant. Grant, we always have the uh, small the specter of drunkenness. All oh, right, the drinking. Yeah, that's right. All right. So, um, how high does he rise in the house? Well, I think he was speaker. Okay. And and he was he was the only I, was he the only president that was both speaker and president. Kind of a of a graveyard for political uh, political ambition. It's really hard to get out of the house unless you become a governor or a senator first. But he he did was he he ran he was a governor also no. Yes. Okay, so he goes to the house, becomes speaker pretty quickly. Yes. Does he do a decent job? 
probably he was as much concerned about maintaining the democratic majority as he was in advancing the country. Because remember, the Whigs were seen as the party with the uh, plan for national improvement. So Polk had to somehow blunt the Whigs' uh, expansive plans for waterways, roads, military installations, you know, all the things the government could do. And uh, obviously he was in favor of the status quo on slavery, maintaining the power of the slave states. Um, in the election of 1844, and in a couple of years before, the question of Texas annexation was very big. Everybody saw Texas as potentially being as many as six or seven slave states. So it wasn't only a question of do we bring Texas into the union, it was also what, what conditions, how does it look, how are we going to cut it up. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really, really hard to find an ideological or national or, or any driving purpose behind Polk's career other than uh, he was interested in, in maintaining the status quo and the uh, strength of the Democratic majority. Well, later on, I mean, I don't know when it started developing in his mind, but the man, not just the tribal idea of maintaining the strength of the Democratic Party, but the manifest destiny idea really became a dominant idea in his political philosophy as well. Correct. Correct. So, uh, Polk became president. Wait, before, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let me, let me, I wanted to actually mention one more thing before that came to my mind before we, you go into the ideas about manifest destiny. You have, LBJ, who we just talked about, and he followed in the shadow and modeled his presidency and his him as a public figure after FDR, no? Yes. Okay. You have Polk, who followed in the shadow and modeled his time as a public figure in a way off of Jackson. Yes. But yet, both were still immensely successful, I would say, in their own sphere. Maybe not at the same level of the originators of those movements, but still right. really powerful. Um, and I think also of like the biblical characters of Elijah and Elisha. What, what do you think about an original type and the energy that they create and the impact that, that they create and then the kind of people, the second wave people who move it forward. Do you, do you see that as, do you think the second wave people are just strictly derivative? All right. So, um, do you see the parallel Jack between LBJ and Polk in that way? Jackson and his presidency, in, in my opinion, is one of the key administrations 
Jackson was seen as the tribune of the of the, of the common man. Jackson extension to the presidency was seen as the triumph of democratic universalism in this country. Uh, if you go back and you read the newspaper accounts, periodical accounts, the correspondence of major figures or informed observers, they viewed Jackson as transforming America from a country dominated by the patricians, the upper class, the landed uh, wealthy, and the big time commercial wealthy, into a country dominated by the plebeians, you know, the, the common man. Um, Polk very much was in that mold. But Polk also was affected, and this, this is something which LBJ lacked. Polk also was affected by the idea of manifest destiny, that the Republic of the United States of America should stretch from sea to shining sea, that we should go from the East Coast to the West Coast and uh, span the entire American continent. Uh, all the contemporary people thought that the Indians were almost uh, almost non-existent. You know that there were very few of them. That uh, their civilization was in, in visible decline, and that their continued presence anywhere was uh, an obstacle to God's plan for establishing a Christian democratic republic on this continent. You know, that's a, a very difficult mindset for us to accept in contemporary America, but that was how they thought back then. And Polk was not particularly articulate about this. I believe the term manifest destiny came from uh, one of his contemporaries and one of his rivals, a man named Louis Cass, who was a senator from Michigan, but nevertheless, um, Polk liked the idea. He liked the idea of expanding the American Republic all the way out to the Pacific and of it being a Christian, white-dominated country. Was he apologetic about it? Not in, not in the least. I mean, he went to war with Mexico. And, you know, the whole idea was that we would, we would dominate the continent of Mexico which probably occupied a quarter of the land which comprises the United States at this time, had to yield to it, you know, by, by warfare. It's a, I mean, it's a mentality that the Mexicans probably understood as well. Does it seem to you that our present-day, like, apprehensions and feelings that those ideas are immoral, um, do they seem to you to be, can you, can you understand both mindsets or do you feel like they, like Polk was out of it? Like he just was, or are we I mean, I'm going to get my, in, 
get you into big trouble here. So we want to think um, Mexico was founded in 1818 or 1820, somewhere in there. Okay. So Mexico was founded after the United States, you know, by uh, a considerable number of years. So the idea that, you know, there was this big Mexican civilization implanted in California, Texas, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, and so on, it's, 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 just, it's, just, it's just wrong. I mean, whatever... Spanish influence was there was Spanish. It was imperialistic. It was, you know, back to the Habsburgs, back in Europe. Mexico had a very tenuous hold on California, Texas, New Mexico, and the rest of the uh, land that we see is from them. And even today, the border regions of the United States bordering against Mexico are separated from the, the core of Mexico by big deserts. You know, the Chihuahuan and Sonoran deserts stretch several hundred miles south and separate, you know, the Sierra Madre and the main core of Mexico from the southern United States. So, Pope, Pope's mindset, it's chauvinistic as it was, as you know, as, as deplorable in many ways as it was, 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 was not unreasonable in the time. I mean, it, 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 even if they hadn't come up with Manifest Destiny, even if there had been no idea uh, of that, it seems obvious that uh, there could only be one big republic on this continent. It was either going to be us or it was going to be Mexico. And, you know, I'd like to point out that it was, was not solely directed at, at, at Mexico. We also had the Oregon dispute with the British, you know, under the uh, 54-4-year fight, you know, that we should have the northwestern boundary up around Juneau, Alaska, instead of, you know, down in, in Washington State below Vancouver Island. Where it is now. So, we, you know, we had the same truculent, expansionary attitude toward the British that we had toward the Mexicans. The only thing was that the British negotiated with us, and for whatever reasons, we fought a conflict with Mexico. Um, were the. So, okay, so in that way, I mean, the British would would at least seem to absolve some of the racial tinge of it or you don't or is that the case would you think that that would be the case no i think, I think mexico I, I i think mexico uh during the period that we're talking about mm -hmm. was dominated by a creole elite creole means white people born in north america mm -hmm. and they pretty well uh, they had themselves set up where they totally dominated the mestizo and indio and, and black populations in Mexico. Um, you know, there was no, I mean, when you read through the Mexican history of the time, you know, you keep, you know, like Benito Juarez was an Indian, you know, somebody else was a mestizo. You know, whenever a mestizo or an Indian 
Trujillo achieves prominence in Mexican history, so the time is always noteworthy. Which, you know, says what? Says the Creoles were running everything, and the assumption was that powerful, wealthy, and influential people would all be Creoles. Which means white. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. All right. Um... And it might have been one of the reasons why they were so uh, accommodating towards Mexico. You know, they might have felt, you know, there's a white government down there. We can't be too vindictive toward them because if that government falls, what are we going to get next? Mm-hmm. What, what, um, t- what about the actual, so his reputation as president rests on his execution of manifest destiny, his, um, his, uh, winning the Mexican war, his expanding the territory of the United States. Was he a, two things I want to hit on. Was he a sure lock to get into the presidency? And also, um, what was the, I mean, so was he a sure lock and what was the election like? And then how quickly did the Mexican war commence? And what were the advantages that we had over them either psychologically or technologically or tactically that caused it to be such a one-sided affair. Okay. All right. So um, Washington served two terms. Jefferson served two terms. Madison served two terms. Monroe served two terms. Jackson served two terms. So the paradigm was more that a successful chief executive would serve two terms. Adams, uh, both Adams actually, and uh, Martin Van Buren were the only ones who served one term, and we all view them as as, as pretty weak uh, presidents. So one term president was seen as kind of the exception you know, kind of like, you're not really cutting it, you know, so we got to get rid of him and get somebody else in there. Um, Harrison, who had won the election in 1840, died shortly after his inauguration. So the elected president had died, and the vice president, you know, which, you know, the Constitution is very, very unclear about the vice president, had to assume office and, you know, his whole cabinet resigned. He just had a lot of difficulties taking over. And John Tyler, that first vice president, to uh, assume the presidency after the death or incapacity of the president, was a former governor of Virginia, uh, former senator, a very prominent, able man, but he never never quite got, got, got control the way he should have. Um, Texas was a separate republic. California, you know, had their flirtation with being a separate republic. And Mexico was undergoing a series of civil wars and uh, succession of coup d'etats, which made them very unstable. So 
um, the Americans in Texas, you know, the, the Texas Republic, uh, had enjoyed a period where Mexico was very weak during to their due, due to their domestic instability. But they saw that Mexico would, at some point, become more stable, more powerful, and should it be better join the USA to protect our interests, protect slavery, mm -hmm. uh, to protect our independence from Mexico. So uh, Tyler thought, yeah, this is what's going to legitimate my presidency. You know, if I take in Texas, it's huge. Um, you know, we'll expand it territory of the United States by over 10%, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of land there for slave states, and he just, he just thought it was a great idea. And basically, though, the uh, hard feelings between him and the Whigs meant that he was a man without a party, and the, the Whigs nominated somebody else, so there was a big split among the Whigs, which meant that uh, a strong Democratic leader could... Uh, Beat the Whigs, and, and Trump was really a uh, compromised candidate who the Democrats chose, thinking the Whigs were going to win the election again, and John Tyler was going to get reelected. And Pope, you know, was good enough that nobody felt uh, distressed about nominating him. But basically, he was there so that all the factions could keep their their strength. And he could run, present the Democrats favorably, but in all the faction he'd ever think of 1848. So, uh, surprise, surprise, uh, Pope beat the uh, weak candidate and became the president. And so they were faced with a, a relatively uh, isolated, very difficult to read kind of uh, president. Mm. That was the first part. So the second part was what, uh, remember you saying something about Mexico's technical advantages or disadvantages, but wasn't there a second question in between? Go ahead and, and oh, how early, how quickly did the war commence on Mexico? So uh, pretty much, you know, the election was 1848, uh, November. Um, Pope was inaugurated in March of 1845. And by, I believe, June, we were shooting with the Mexicans. We were in a shooting war with the Mexicans, fighting major, major pitched battles with the regular army of the two countries, the bulk of our army, the bulk of their army. Was uh, shooting it out in Texas. Was the public behind it? Abraham Lincoln stood up in the, in the U.S. House of Representatives and, and demanded that the president or the secretary of state show him where on the map it was that American forces were fired upon. He didn't, he didn't even believe that hmm. the Mexicans uh, had crossed the American border. Really? Yes. Was it a was it a setup like a like a World War, like the thing that the Germans did with the Polish in order to like bait bait no, or fake no. out? There was a dispute. Um, there were two tributaries of the Rio Grande, one which is the main tributary, which the United States said was the international boundary. The other was a tributary called the Nicos 
N-E-U-C-E-S, which Mexico claimed was the international boundary and the the incursion occurred between the two rivers. Uh, Taylor, the general in charge, not to be confused with Tyler, the former president, had moved the army not right up to the Rio Grande, but basically about halfway between the two rivers. So the Mexicans did have to cross the Rio Grande to uh, shoot at us, which they did. And that was the incident which uh, Polk used to commence the war. Okay, so I don't know if I want to touch on the cultural and different and differences and things like that right now. Let's why don't we? Why don't you mention what were the innovations or the differences tactically, technologically, psychologically? Right. That- so, the United States in eighteen forties, throughout the whole decade, underwent a series of, of great technological innovations. You know, basically, iron nails became very common, so we no longer, you know fitted pieces of wood together and drilled out a hole and pulled out a pestle and fitted it together and then stuck in that stuck in that pestle to hold it together. You know, now we just cut the boards and nailed them together with iron nails, you know, which is pretty much the way we do it now. You build a frame and you had inner wall and outer walls, which we refer to as balloon construction that was developed at this period. Printing had a lot of innovation. Uh, we're beginning to uh, figure out how to do telegraphy, electric telegraphy. They, they were, they had the batteries figured out. They had the wires figured out. Morse invented the code that they could use to utilize that. Uh, we had steamships going. We had locomotives going. We figured out the smelting processes needed to make the iron rail, carry railroads. I mean, just just a huge array. Of, of different technological innovations were occurring in the United States or being adapted from European innovations. And the same thing was not happening in Mexico. So we had a huge advantage in terms of the armament. We had a massive advantage in terms of our merchant marine was very capable. We had a lot of ships. We had men who could operate them so we could mount uh, the amphibious invasion of Veracruz. And instead of having to march all the way from Texas to Mexico City, we shortened that march enormously to like maybe like a third of what it would have been otherwise by landing the army in Veracruz. Um, we knew more about preserving food, keeping water fresh than the Mexicans did, uh, probably because of our maritime experience, but also because of people moving west in, in, in wagon trains and so on. And having to take their food with them when you know they went on these you know thousand mile journeys to Oregon or wherever they were going, and we had a much more I would say advanced educational system. So the average American could read and write. The average Mexican at the time still was likely to have been illiterate. So we could train our men on weaponry, logistics, drill all those things that make it the soldier. So even though the Mexican soldier was brave, physically fit, 
um, you know, and physically pretty, you know, pretty much the equal of the American soldier. The American soldier had advantages in organization, armaments, and logistics, which just allowed us to basically cream the Mexicans. Yeah. Why, if you had to venture a guess, I mean, other than you talked about the experience with the maritime, um, you know, uh, mercantilism and the expansion westward, um, and the fact that we founded the country earlier, and maybe the fact that we had a less of a stratified kind of, or less of a um, separation between the our elites and our um, plebeians, maybe ethnically more similar. What what factors do you think made it? I don't know if the country was probably bigger population-wise, but what were the, in your estimation, what were the differences that put America on that superior footing, like that, you know what I mean, that brought a, brought them so quickly to a so, place where I they mean, were ahead? Partly, it was the disorganization and disunion among the Mexicans. Their government was bankrupt. Um... Like I said, they had just gone through a period of really pervasive dislocation and disorder in their national government. Um, the army was highly factionalized. You know, the, the political factions controlled different parts of the army. So the coordination in their army was not as good as it was in ours. And you know, we were we were pretty much at uh, a high point in terms of, of patriotism, motivation, innovation, and Mexico was uh, disunited, bankrupt, and they, it, at that point they still really formed a national identity. So you know, there really wasn't the sense you know when we were fighting in Chihuahua or in Monterey you know, in Mexico City or Puebla or Puebla or the state of Mexico, you know, there wasn't that sense, oh, you know, they're they're in our country and we gotta we gotta drive them out. Okay. So that's almost a psychological advantage. Well well I I would say political advantages because, you know, the Mexican army still fought. I mean, you know, the they still held their ground. They still made attacks. They still marched, you know, on 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 really brutal forced marches when they had to go somewhere to uh, to engage us. I mean, but if you go, if you go back to Vietnam, why why I call it a political? I mean, a psychological advantage and not a political advantage is politically speaking, Vietnam was very divided. But the people had the spirit of their country, the spirit of, like, that they were defending something that was theirs. And so it gave them a psychological strength that allowed them to withstand and fight back against technological innovation, which was on their side. The Vietnamese had a, a national identity that stretched back many generations, if not centuries, which the Mexicans didn't have. Yeah. Uh, the North Vietnamese had communism, which was a uniting ideology, which was also popular in the South. Right. 
And uh, Vietnam was 10 years away from the expulsion of the imperial power. And Mexico by then was, you know, 25, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe like 25 years past it. So it wasn't as fresh. And we weren't really comparable to the Spaniards. And I don't think in the eyes of the Mexicans, you know, I mean, we weren't people coming from Europe and we were the neighbors, you know, so uh, I, I, I just don't think the Mexicans had the same sense of invasion that the Vietnamese had. All right. What, what, um... And, and look, at, look, at what, look at what the Mexicans called us. I mean, they called us gringos, which supposedly is a corruption of green slaves. Of you green? know, referring okay. to the uniforms with words. It's, it's not, a, you know, it's not a slur. It's just, you know, a name. Yeah, that's, that's what I heard about the etymology of the word, that it means literally green go, like go away, because they were wearing the green uniforms. I don't know. Let me, what, what about, how does... Polk's presidency end? Was he considered a... Oh, you can talk about the resolution of the war, maybe the payments that we made, if you think that the well, territories... secretiveness was a big problem for him. What's that? Polk's uh, secretiveness was a big political problem for him. Okay. Like, nobody knew what he was thinking, nobody knew what he had planned for them. He had no specific successor. Uh, Lucretia's health was failing. His health was failing. Uh, he didn't like any of the generals he sent. He thought he saw them all as political rivals. And, uh, you know, Taylor actually came back and ran and was elected. Um, it was usually expensive. I mean, Polk uh, uh, was a big penny pincher. He didn't like the expense of the war. It was way out of his anything he understood. It's hard for him to keep up with. The uh, American uh, emissaries sent to negotiate uh, a treaty with the Mexicans made a number of big mistakes and gave the Mexicans concessions, which the Polk administration had to renounce, mm-hmm. uh, which which hurt him actually more domestically than it did with Mexicans, because in the negotiation with the Mexicans, they were able to offer them other concessions, which compensated the Mexican for the reneging that the emissary made. But in uh, in Washington, Hope was seen as weak and not having control of the government. So it hurt him politically to have his emissary in Mexico make uh, errors in negotiating a treaty. So his, his, his term ended, I think, pretty badly. You know, I think his reputation recovered uh, as successive historians began looking at him. You know, they see somebody who was uh, able to... Uh, take control of the presidency at a time when the powers of the presidency were in doubt, took it over from John Tyler, where the institution had been damaged by Tyler's succession after the dead president. And uh, Polk expanded and restored the 
powers of the presidency, clearly made the president a pretty eminent figure in the conduct of uh, foreign affairs, military affairs, uh, economics. So, so that that made him uh, a pretty big figure. He was moderately successful legislatively in that he got the budgets he needed, the personnel, supplies, and so on that he needed to successfully prosecute the war and to, to uh, seal a deal on a successful peace treaty. But uh, he was a status quo president on everything else. I guess he extended his political capital on the war and didn't have enough accrued to uh, make any inroads against slavery or in domestic uh, domestic improvement. So this created a very sectionalized uh, degree of support for the Mexican War. The Southerners liked it because you know they were getting the land and the glory, and the Northerners disliked it because all the appropriations were going to fight the war, and uh, they weren't getting anything out of it. Mm-hmm. So he, he left the presidency not in disgrace, but ill, uh, stymied. And again, you know, uh, he was the third one-term president. So in, in retrospect, we look at that period from Jackson to Lincoln. They're all one-term presidents. So we, and, and, and in, in the two Whig administrations, the good man who was elected president died in office. So their vice presidents took over. So there's a whole proliferation of these relatively weak, ineffective presidents. And among them, Polk really stands out as a powerful figure, as a decisive leader, as an effective executive. So uh, we tended to rate Polk as near great, you know, not a towering political figure like Jackson or Roosevelt or Jefferson, but a very highly effective president, very imaginative, and a person who was able to uh, understand and utilize the big political idea of the day, which was uh, manifest destiny, and use it uh, effectively to carry out and expand the republic. Mm, mm. All right. I think think that's um, a good synopsis. Is there any other point you wanted to add before we uh, wrap up on Polk? No, that's I think we've covered about all that I wanted to cover. All right. And do you have any idea um, for our listeners what what where we're going to go next, or um, we'll have to? I you know I still like John Q. Adams. Okay. All right. So I mean, he's he's a little bit obscure, but I just think he was such an interesting person. I mean, uh, you know, we remembered him because he served as president, but he was a diplomat. And he was in Congress for a long time. He was one of the leading abolitionists of the day. Uh, I just think he's a tremendously interesting man. And even though we'll probably talk more about him as an individual than most of these people, uh, I, I, I would, I would opt for John Q. All right. Well, we haven't we haven't really done an early president yet, so that seems like a good um, thing to aim for. Uh, well, I think that's about it. So thanks for listening. Um, and, we'll and, and thanks to the listeners. You know, I appreciate your 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 patience in listening to us. <laughs>
And we'll be coming up with new episodes soon, so just uh, give us any might comments. Not be John too, but somebody. Yep, give us any comments. And thank you, or thank you Phil, for the questions and the astute uh, thinking behind them. Sure, no problem. All right, well, I'll speak to you later. All right, bye-bye. All right, take care. This music starting now.